0: Welcome, everyone, to episode 54 of Ohio Unsolved. I'm your host, Matthew, and I want to briefly talk about the year-end wrap that Anchor has sent out. First, this podcast was in the top 10% of all podcasts shared globally. So thank you so much to everyone that shares this podcast with their friends and family. Next, I am a top 10 podcast for almost 700 people, and I am the number one podcast for almost 150 people. Thank you so much to every one of you that listens, and an extra big thank you to the almost 150 people that I am number one with. You guys are all awesome. Now let's get right into today's episode, which is about serial killer Albert Fish, And this is going to be a very graphic episode, so listener discretion is advised. Everyone sit back, make sure to lock those doors and windows, and get ready for Ohio Unsolved. Fish was an American serial killer, rapist, child molester, and cannibal who committed at least three child murders from July 1924 to June of 1928. He was also known as the Gray Man, the Werewolf of Wisteria, and the Brooklyn Vampire. Albert Fish was a suspect in at least five murders during his lifetime while he confessed to only three murders that police were able to trace a known homicide, and he confessed to stabbing at least two other people. He once boasted that he had children in every state, and at one time he stated that his number of victims was about 100. However, it is not known whether he was referring to rapes or cannibalization, nor is it known if the statement was truthful. Albert Fish was born in Washington, D.C. on May 19, 1870, to Randall and Ellen Fish. His father was American of English ancestry, and his mother was Scots-Irish-American. His father was 43 years older than his mother and aged at 75 at the time of his birth. He was the youngest child, and he had three children living siblings Walter, Annie, and Edwin. He wished to be known as Albert after a dead sibling and to escape the nickname Ham and Eggs that he was given at an orphanage in which he spent much of his childhood. Fish's family had a history of mental illness. His uncle had mania, one of his brothers was confined in a state mental hospital and his sister Annie was diagnosed with a mental affliction. Three other relatives were diagnosed with mental illnesses and his mother had oral and or visual hallucinations. His father, a fertilizer manufacturer, suffered a fatal heart attack at the Baltimore and Potomac Railroad Station in 1875. Congressional cemetery records show that he died on October 16th and was buried on October 19th. His mother then put her son into St. John's Orphanage in Washington, where he was frequently physically abused. He began to enjoy the physical pain that the beatings brought. By 1880, Albert's mother secured a government job and was able to remove him from the orphanage. In 1882, at age 12, he began a relationship with a telegraph boy. The youth introduced fish to such practices as, I'm sorry, I'm going to butcher this word, urologina, which is drinking urine, and I can't pronounce this word, but it's eating feces, Albert began visiting public baths where he could watch other boys undress, spending a great portion of his weekends on these visits. Throughout his life, he he would write obscene letters to women whose names that he acquired from classified ads and matrimonial agencies. At age 20, Albert moved to New York City, there he engaged in male prostitution and began molesting and raping boys, mostly younger than six years old. In 1898, Albert's mother arranged a marriage for him with Anna Mary Hoffman, who was nine years his junior. They had six children, Albert, Anna, Gertrude, Eugene, John, and Henry Fish. In 1903, Fish was arrested for grand larceny, convicted and incarcerated in Sing Sing. He would later recount an incident in which a male lover took him to a wax museum, where he was fascinated by the bisection of a human penis and subsequently became obsessed with sexual mutilation. Several years later, around 1910, Albert was working in Wilmington, Delaware, when he met a 19-year-old man named Thomas Kedden. He took Kedden to where he was staying and the two began a sadomasochistic relationship. It is unclear whether or not Albert forced Kedden to do these things, but his confession applies that Kedden was intellectually disabled. After ten days, Albert took him to an old farmhouse where he tortured him over a period of two weeks. Albert eventually tied him up and cut off half of his penis. I shall never forget his scream, or the look he gave me," Fish later recalled. He originally intended to kill him, cut up his body, and take it home. But he feared that the hot weather would draw attention to him. Instead, Albert poured peroxide over the wound, wrapped it in a Vaseline-covered handkerchief, left a ten-dollar bill, kissed Caden goodbye, and left. Took first train I could get back home. Never heard what became of him, or tried to find out, Fish said. In January of 1917, Albert's wife left him for John Stroop, a handyman who boarded with the Fish family. Fish then had to raise his children as a single parent. After his arrest, Albert told a newspaper that when his wife left him, she took nearly every possession the family owned. Albert began to have auditory hallucinations. He once wrapped himself in a carpet, saying that he was following the instructions of John the Apostle. It was about this time that Albert began to indulge in self-harm by embedding needles into his groin and abdomen. After his arrest, x-rays revealed that albert had at least 29 needles lodged in his pelvic region he also hit himself repeatedly with a nail studded paddle and inserted wool doused with lighter fluid into his anus and set it on fire while albert was never thought to have physically attacked or abused his children he did encourage them and their friends to paddle him with the same nail-studded paddle that he used to abuse himself. Around 1919, Albert stabbed an intellectually disabled boy in Georgetown. He would choose people who were either mentally disabled or African-American as his victims, later explaining that he assumed that these people would not be missed when killed. Fish would later claim to have occasionally paid boys to procure other children for him. Fish tortured, mutilated, and murdered young children with his, quote, implements of hell, a meat cleaver, a butcher knife, and a small handsaw. On July 11, 1924, Albert found eight-year-old Beatrice Keel laying alone on her parents' farm on Staten Island. He offered her money to come and help him look for Rhubarb. She was about to leave the farm when her mother chased Albert away. Fish left, but he returned later to the Keels' barn, where he tried to sleep but was discovered by Beatrice's father and forced to leave. Three days later, Fish killed Francis McDonald, also on Staten Island. During 1924, the 54-year-old Albert, suffering from psychosis, felt that God was commanding him to torture and sexually mutilate children. Shortly before his abduction of Grace Budd, Fish attempted to test his implements of hell on a child that he had been molesting named Cyril Quinn. Cyril and his friend were playing box ball on a sidewalk when Albert asked them if they had eaten lunch. When they said that they had not, he invited them into his apartment for sandwiches. While the two boys were wrestling on Albert's bed, they dislodged his mattress. Underneath was a knife, a small handsaw, and a meat cleaver. They became frightened and ran out of the apartment. During the night, July 14th 1924, 9-year-old Francis McDonald was reported missing after he failed to return home after playing catch with friends in Port Richmond, Staten Island. A search was organized and his body was found, hanging by a tree, in a wooded area near his home. He had been sexually assaulted and then strangled with his suspenders. According to an autopsy, Francis McDonald had also suffered extensive lacerations to his legs and abdomen, and his left hamstring had almost entirely been stripped of its flesh. Albert refused to claim responsibility for this, although he later stated that he intended to castrate the boy, but fled when he heard someone approaching the area. McDonald's friends told the police that he was taken by an elderly man with a gray mustache. A neighbor also told the police that he observed the boy with a similar-looking man walking along a grassy path into the nearby woods. Francis's mother, Anna McDonald, said that she saw the same man earlier that day, telling reporters, he came shuffling down the street, mumbling to himself, and making queer motions with his hands. I saw his thick gray hair and his drooping gray mustache. Everything about him seemed faded and gray. The description resulted in the mysterious stranger becoming known as the Gray Man. The McDonald murder remained unsolved until the murder of Grace Budd, when several eyewitnesses, among them the Staten Island farmer Hans Kiel, positively identified Albert as the odd stranger seen around Port Richmond on the day of McDonald's disappearance. Richmond County District Attorney Thomas J. Walsh announced his intention to seek an indictment against Albert for the boy's murder. At first, Fish denied the charges. It was only in March 1935, after the conclusion of his trial for the Bud murder and his confession to the killing of Billy Gaffney that he confirmed to investigators that he also raped and murdered McDonald. When the McDonald Confession was made public, the New York Daily Mirror wrote that the disclosure solidified Fish's reputation as the most vicious child slayer in criminal history. On February 11, 1927, three-year-old Billy Beaton, and his 12-year-old brother were playing in the apartment hallway in Brooklyn with four-year-old Billy Gaffney. When the 12-year-old left for his apartment, both younger boys disappeared. Beaton was found later on the roof of the apartments. When asked what happened to Gaffney, Beaton said the boogeyman took him. Gaffney's body was never recovered. Initially, serial killer Peter Kuznowski was a suspect in Gaffney's murder. Then, Joseph Meehan, a motorman on the Brooklyn trolley, saw a picture of Albert in a newspaper and identified him as the old man who he saw February 11th. The old man had been trying to quiet a little boy sitting with him on the trolley. The boy was not wearing a jacket was crying for his mother and was dragged by the man on and off the trolley. Beaton's description of the quote boogeyman matched Albert Fish. Police matched the description of the child to Gaffney. Detectives of the Manhattan Missing Persons Bureau were able to establish that Albert Fish was employed as a house painter by a Brooklyn real estate company during February 1927, and that on the day of Gaffney's disappearance, he was working at a location just a few miles from where the boy was abducted. Flit Fish claimed the following in a letter to his attorney. I brought him to the Riker Avenue dumps. There is a house that stands alone, not far from where I took him. I took the G-boy there stripped him naked and tied his hands and feet and gagged him with a piece of dirty rag I picked out of the dump then I burned his clothes threw his shoes in the dump then I walked back and took trolley to 59th street at 2am and walked home from there next day about 2pm I took tools a good heavy cat of nine tails homemade short handle cut one of my belts in half slit these half and six strips about eight inches long. I whipped his bear behind until the blood ran from his legs. I cut off his ears, nose, slit his mouth from ear to ear, gouged out his eyes. He was dead then. I sucked the knife in his belly, and I held my mouth to his body and drank his blood. I picked up four old potato sacks and gathered a pile of stones. Then I cut him up. I had a grip with me. I put his nose, ears, and a few slices of his belly in the grip. Then I cut him through the middle of his body, just below his belly button, then through his legs about two inches below his behind. I put this in my grip with a lot of paper. I cut off the head, feet, arms, hands, and legs below the knee. Then I put in sacks weighed with stones, tied the ends, and threw them into the pools of slimy water where you will see all along the road going to North Beach. Water is three to four feet deep. They sank at once. I came home with my meat. I had the front of his body I liked best, his monkey and peewees, and a nice little fat behind to roast in the oven and eat. I made a stew out of his ears, nose pieces of his face and belly. I put onions, carrots, turnips, celery, salt, and pepper. It was good. Then I split the cheeks of his behind open and cut off his monkey and peewees and washed them first. I put strips of bacon on each cheek of his behind and put it in the oven. Then I picked four onions and when meat had roasted about one-fourth of an hour, I poured about a pint of water over it for gravy, and put in the onions. At frequent intervals, I basted his behind with a wooden spoon, so the meat would be nice and juicy. In about two hours, it was nice and brown, cooked through. I never ate any roast turkey that tasted half as good as his sweet, fat little behind did. I ate every bit of the meat in about four days. His little monkey was as sweet as a nut, but his pee-wees I could not chew, threw them in the toilet. God, that's so disgusting. Gaffney's mother, Elizabeth, visited Fish and Sing Sing, accompanied by Detective King and two other men. She wanted to ask him about her son's death, but Fish refused to speak to her. Albert began to weep and asked to be left alone. After two hours of asking him questions through his lawyer, James Dempsey, Mrs. Gaffney gave up. She was still unconvinced that Fish was her son's killer. On May 25th, 1928, Albert saw a classified ad in the Sunday edition of the New York World that read, Young Man, 18, Wishes Position and Country, Edward Bud, 406 West 15th Street. On May 28th, Albert, then 58 years old, visited the Bud family in Manhattan under the pretense of hiring Edward. He later confessed that he planned to tie Edward up, mutilate him, and leave him to bleed to death. Albert introduced himself as Frank Howard, a farmer from Farmingdale, New York. He promised to hire Bud and his friend Willie and said that he would send for them in just a few days. Fish failed to show up but he sent a telegram to the Bud family, apologizing and would set a later date. When Fish returned, he met Edward's younger sister, 10-year-old Grace Budd. He apparently shifted his amorous intentions towards Grace and quickly made up a story about having to attend his niece's birthday party. He convinced the parents, Delia Flanagan and Albert Budd, to let Grace accompany him to the party that evening. Fish subsequently took Grace to an abandoned house he had previously picked out to use for the murder of his next victim, Wisteria Cottage at 359 Mountain Road, located in the East Irvington neighborhood of Irvington, New York. There, he murdered and ate the poor girl. The police arrested 66-year-old Superintendent Charles Edward Pope on September 5, 1930, as a suspect in Grace's disappearance. Accused by Pope's estranged wife, he spent 108 days in jail between his arrest and trial on December 22, 1930. He was found not guilty. In November 1934, an anonymous letter was sent to Grace's parents, which ultimately led the police to, to Albert Fish. Mrs. Budd was illiterate and could not read the letter herself, thank God, so she had her son read it to her. The unaltered letter, complete with Fish's misspellings and grammatical error, reads, And let me warn you, this next portion is extremely graphic. My dear Miss Bud, In 1894, a friend of mine shipped as a deckhand on the steamer Tacoma, Captain John Davis. They sailed from San Francisco to Hong Kong, China. On arriving there, he and two others went ashore and got drunk. When they returned, the boat was gone. At that time, there was a famine in China. Meat of any kind was from one to three dollars a pound. So great was the suffering among the very poor that all children under twelve were sold to the butchers to be cut up and sold for food in order to keep the others from starving. A boy or girl under fourteen was not safe in the street. You could go in any shop and ask for steak, chops, or stew meat. Part of the naked body of a boy or girl would be brought out and just what you wanted cut from it boy or girl's behind which is the sweetest part of the body and sold as veal cutlet brought the highest price John stayed there so long that he acquired a taste for human flesh on his return to New York he stole two boys one seven, one eleven took them to his home stripped them naked tied them in a closet then burned everything they had on several times every day and night He spanked them, tortured them, to make their meat good and tender. First, he killed the 11-year-old boy, because he had the fattest ass, and of course, the most meat on it. Every part of his body was cooked and eaten, except his head, bones, and guts. He was roasted in the oven, all of his ass, boiled, broiled, fried, stewed. The little boy was next, went the same way. At that time, I was living at 409 East 100th Street, rear right side. He told me so often on how good human flesh was, I made up my mind to taste it. On Sunday, June the 3rd, 1928, I called on you at 406 West 15th Street, brought you pot cheese and strawberries. We had lunch. Grace sat in my lap and kissed me. I made up my mind to eat her on the pretense of taking her to a party. You said yes, she could go. I took her to an empty house in Westchester I'd already picked out. When we got there, I told her to remain outside. She picked wildflowers. I went upstairs and stripped all my clothes off. I knew if I did not, I would get her blood on them. When all was ready, I went to the window and called her. Then I hid in a closet until she was in the room. When she saw me all naked, she began to cry and tried to run downstairs. I grabbed her and, said that she, and she said that she would tell her mama. I first stripped her naked. How she did kick, bite, and scratch. I choked her to death, then I cut her into small pieces so I could take my meat to my rooms, cook, and eat it. How sweet and tender her little ass was roasted in the oven. It took me nine days to eat her entire body. I did not fuck her, though. I could have had. I wished. She died a virgin. Let me just break that. That is a horrible thing to read. Police investigated the letter. The story concerning Captain Davis and the famine in Hong Kong could not be verified. The part of the letter concerning the murder of Grace, however, was found to be accurate in its description of the kidnapping and subsequent events, although it was impossible to confirm whether or not Albert had actually eaten parts of Grace's body. The letter was delivered in an envelope that had a small hexagonal emblem with the letters NYPCBA, representing New York Private Chauffeur's Benevolent Association. A janitor at the company told the police that he had taken some of the stationery home, but left it at his rooming house at 200 East 52nd Street when he moved out. The landlady of the rooming house said that Albert Fish checked out of that room a few days earlier. She said that Fish's son sent him money, and he could ask her to hold his next check for him. William F. King, the chief investigator for the case, waited outside the room until Albert returned. He agreed to go to headquarters for questioning, then brandished a razor blade. King disarmed Fish and took him to police headquarters. Fish made no attempt to deny the murder of Grace Budd saying that he meant to go to the house to kill her brother Edward. Fish said that it never even entered his head to rape the girl, but he later claimed to his attorney that, while kneeling on Grace's chest and strangling her, he did have two involuntary ejaculations. This information was used at trial to make the claim the kidnapping was sexually motivated, thus avoiding any mention of cannibalism. Albert's trial for the murder of Grace Budd began on March 11, 1935, in White Plains, New York. Frederick P. Close presided as judge, and Westchester County Chief Assistant District Attorney Albert F. Gallagher was prosecuting attorney. Fish's defense counsel was James Dempsey, a former prosecutor and the one-time mayor of Peekskill, New York. The trial lasted for 10 days. Fish would plead insanity and claim to have heard voices from God telling him to kill children. Several psychiatrists testified about Albert's sexual fetishes, which included sadism, masochism, flagellation, exhibitionism, voyeurism, peakerism, cannibalism, cop can't pronounce that word, eating and drinking urine and feces, pedophilia, necrophilia, and infabulation. Dempsey, in his summation, noted that Albert was a psychiatric phenomenon, and that nowhere in legal or medical records was there another individual who possessed so many sexual abnormalities. The defense's chief expert witness was Frederick Wertham, a psychiatrist with an emphasis on child development who conducted psychiatric examinations for the New York criminal courts. During two days of testimony, Wertham explained Fish's obsession with religion and specifically his preoccupation with the biblical story of Abraham and Isaac. Orton said that Albert believed that similarly, sacrificing a boy would be penance for his own sins, and that even if the act itself was wrong, angels would prevent it if God did not approve. Fish attempted the sacrifice once before, but was thwarted when a car drove past. Edward Bud was the next intended victim, but he turned out to be larger than expected, so he settled on Grace. Although he knew Grace was female, it is believed that Albert Fish perceived her as a boy. to then detailed Fish's cannibalism, which, in his mind, he associated with communion. The last question Dempsey asked was 15,000 words long, detailed Fish's life, and ended with asking how the doctor considered his mental condition based on this life? Wartum simply answered, he is insane. Gallagher cross-examined Wartum on whether Fish knew the difference between right and wrong. He responded that he did know, but that it was a perverted knowledge based on his opinions of sin, atonement, and religion, and thus was an insane knowledge. The defense called two more psychiatrists to support Wirtam's findings. The first of four rebuttal witnesses was Menace Gregory, the former manager of the Bellevue Hotel where Albert was treated during 1930. He testified that Fish was abnormal but sane. Under cross-examination, Dempsey asked if corpophilia, urophilia, and pedophilia indicated a sane Or insane person. Gregory replied that such a person was not mentally sick, and that these were common perversions that were socially perfectly all right, and that Fish was no different from millions of other people. Some very prominent and successful who had the very same perversions. The next witness was the resident physician at the tombs, Perry Lichtenstein. Dempsey objected to a doctor with no training in psychiatry, testifying on the issue of sanity. But Justice Close overruled on the basis that the jury could decide what weight to give a prison doctor. When asked whether fish's causing himself pain indicated a mental condition, Lichtenstein replied, That is not masochism as he was only punishing himself to get sexual gratification. The next witness, Charles Lampert, testified that corprophilia was a common practice and that religious cannibalism may be psychopathic, but was a matter of taste, and not evidence of a psychosis. The last witness, James Vavasour, repeated Lambert's opinion. Another defense witness was Mary Nicholas, Albert's 17-year-old stepdaughter. She described how Fish taught her and her brothers and sisters several games involving overtones of masochism and child molestation. None of the jurors doubted that Fish was insane, but ultimately, as one later explained, they felt that he should be executed anyway. They found him to be sane and guilty, and the judge sentenced the defendant to death by electrocution. Albert Fish arrived at prison in March 1935, and he was executed on January 16, 1936 in the electric chair at Sing Sing. He entered the chamber at 11.06 p.m. and was pronounced dead three minutes later. He was buried in the Sing Sing Prison Cemetery. Fish is said to have helped the executioner position the electrodes on his body. His last words were were reportedly, I don't even know why I'm here. According to one witness present, it took two jolts before Fish died, creating the rumor that the apparatus was short-circuited by the needles that Fish inserted into his body. These rumors were later regarded as untrue, as Fish reportedly died in the same fashion and time frame as others in the electric chair. At a meeting with reporters after the execution, Albert's lawyer, James Dempsey, revealed that he was in possession of his client's final statement. This amounted to several pages of handwritten notes that Fish apparently penned in the hours just prior to his death. When pressed by the assembled journalist to reveal the document's contents, Dempsey refused, stating, I will never show it to anyone. It was the most filthy string of obscenities that I have ever read. I've talked about some true-to-life monsters on this podcast, but none are anywhere near the level of horrible that is Albert Fish. I first heard about him through the podcast Time Suck. I couldn't believe the things that I was hearing that this man did. Thankfully, all of his horrible actions were done, and he was dead before all of our times. If someone were to get caught doing something like this today, I have no doubt in my mind that he would be murdered even before he could get through a trial. That letter that he sent to that poor girl's parents is the most wretched thing that I have ever read or heard. I, I wouldn't know how to respond to something like that, and hopefully no one has to ever go through something like that again. Well, that is going to do it for today. I know that this was a very graphic episode, and some of it was very hard to listen to. But if you could, please rate and review on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. A five-star rating really helps others to find us. Make sure to join us on Facebook, follow us on Instagram, and subscribe on YouTube. If you do enjoy this podcast please consider helping to support the show through Patreon with monthly bonus episodes being available from the $5 tier. Once again, thank you everyone for listening and make sure to keep those doors and windows locked and stay ready for Ohio Unsolved.